We're going to continue uh, tonight with the going through the Westminster Confession, and tonight we get to chapter 31. Not exactly a scintillating chapter heading. It's called Of Synods and Councils. In other words, we're going to talk about going to meetings. And if you've never done this before, it, uh, it might sound sort of boring, but I can tell you <laughs> that it is, um, there's just no way to recount the events that occur at uh, these kinds of events. I, I want to start with a, an expression from a theologian named G.I. Williamson. G.I. Williamson was, I think, a New Zealander. A very, very solid theologian, and he comes to chapter 31 of the Confession with this description. He calls it an acute difficulty. Now, the reason he found this an acute difficulty is probably because being from New Zealand, he was in the orbit of Great Britain and was used to uh, to this notion of the civil magistrate, the government being put in charge of the church. Now, that uh, original version of the Westminster Confession was changed in 1788 by the Presbyterians in America so that our uh, Westminster Confession version of this 31st chapter, in particular the first paragraph of it, has removed that notion of civil magistrates being in charge of, of the church. And we, of course, feel very strongly that uh, the, the church and the state should be separated. Uh, we're going to get back to that in the fourth paragraph of this uh, particular chapter, which is all that it contains. But let me tell you in the front end of this, I'm going to expand a bit the notion of synods and councils to include the government of the church. So I'm going to talk about presbyteries a bit and sessions a bit because they all lead to these notions of, of synods and councils. Uh, let me begin with um, the first paragraph, which you see behind me here, that reads this way, for the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. And it belongs to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. Now, the passages that you see uh, the confession listing uh, begins with the 15th chapter of Acts. That's going to be a critically important chapter for this 31st chapter of the confession, uh, and we will get to it in, in a very short order. But you see from the get-go that synods and councils are part of the government of the church, the governing uh, structure as well as functioning of the church within the reformed world. Right off the bat, there is something assumed in that structure that's very, very important. R.C. Sproul said it this way, churches should not exist in isolation 
or be unrelated to each other. That's very, very true and very important for a number of reasons, and it's a truth that is reflected in Scripture. Now, this first paragraph talks about reasons for this kind of interrelatedness. Why would you have, if if you've got a church and you've got a session of a church, why would you want to have presbyteries, which are simply gatherings of the elders of the churches within a certain geography, and then morph that into a synod or a general assembly, which would be the gathering of the entirety of the eldership of the church who are appointed to be at such things. Well, a couple of reasons given in the first paragraph are one, for better government of the church, and secondly, for its further edification. It goes on to say that these assemblies are to be appointed or called into existence by the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches. In other words, all of the churches will take our own denomination, the PCA, all of the uh, elders and, and sessions and so forth and presbyteries have determined when and why synods and general assemblies would occur. Uh, it's, it's given to them by Christ. It's, it's a weighty obligation to do this, and again, for the purpose of the edification of the church. And there occur, it says, quote, as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church, end quote. This can range. It can range for a number of reasons. It can be a stated meeting that is uh, known beforehand, sometimes a year beforehand. We know when every general assembly is going to take place beforehand, but you can have um, issues arise at any point in time when people can call such meetings and uh, have them outside of those normal stated points. One essential benefit of this interrelatedness also is the opportunity to discuss topics in larger audiences. This is, I have seen the fruit of this in almost every meeting I've ever been in, in a, in a reformed church context. You gain additional perspectives that way. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people falls but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Uh, it has been almost revelatory. It, it shouldn't be. It makes perfectly good sense. But it's, it's astounding to me how many times I've entered a meeting where I knew a certain topic was going to be discussed, and I was absolutely certain of what I thought about it and how I was going to uh, attempt to deal with it in the context of the meeting, only to hear other people bring additional perspectives and viewpoints which I had not considered and often change my opinion on it. Uh, That's why you have meetings to begin with and the church uh, Presbyterian governing process and procedures work, frankly, in an excellent way. It is not always pleasant uh, to go to these meetings and the meetings themselves are not always pleasant, but they are always fruitful even when they wind up uh, with decisions you would uh, perhaps not have made or they fail to come to a decision. What you see very, very clearly in all of these kinds of meetings from the session level here at the church up to presbytery level and up to synod and general assembly level is the Lord is sovereignly bringing people 
and bringing ideas and putting words out in order to get the right decisions made. I've just seen it over and over and over again, not often knowing at that point in time that this is, is happening, but it's clearly happening. I mentioned Acts 15. I mentioned that, and the the confession brings that passage up because that is known as the Jerusalem Council. So we're already into the synods and councils. Those of you who have your Bibles with you, I'll just read a couple of of the words of this uh, council, and you'll remember them. Pretty quickly, probably, it's, it's headed the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, begins this way, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is when the church is beginning to be founded by these apostles. Jesus has, has been taken to glory. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's left these apostles with the task of going out and planting his church. And Paul and Peter in particular are at loggerheads because this church began with Jews who had become Christian. All the apostles were Jews. They're starting to bring the church out where Jesus commanded them through Jerusalem, through Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're bringing the church to Gentiles, and this was, was an extremely difficult act for these men to, to measure and actually carry out. You remember the, Peter going to the home of Cornelius and he's, he's engaged uh, with Cornelius and his family and a lot of good things happen. And as he leaves the house, he starts to have doubts. He starts to have questions. Did I do the right thing? Have I really, really messed up here? Uh, Paul is out with no trouble because he is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So eventually, Paul and Peter are at loggerheads. This chapter 15 of Acts begins with, with some people saying, unless you're circumcised, in other words, unless you become Jewish, you cannot be part of the Christian church. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So that is the the question, the issue, a very, very important central issue that has called this particular council into being. They go up to Jerusalem, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, notice that, by the church, They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So you can easily understand based upon the background of all of the people involved, why these issues were so important to them. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, 
bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. The meeting goes on to come to a resolution. And they encourage Paul and Barnabas to get back at it. And all of them get back at it. As you may know, the traditions among the 12 uh, apostles send some of them to India, some of them down into Africa, Ethiopia, and so forth and so on. So the point is, these councils have been formed in this event, very, very uh, critical event early in the life of the church in order to, uh, to have everybody come to the same agreement that the gospel ought to go indeed throughout the entire world to Gentiles as well as Jews. So again, you see the issue of church government. Now, what happened after that era of the apostles, once you, once you get to 100 AD or so, then you have the church being formed in multiple cultures. You can imagine the description we just heard from Miguel of this church in Okinawa who's got many, many people from different cultures involved with it. Well, this process is starting to move in 100 AD or so throughout uh, the known world at that point. And over those, uh, say, first thousand years or so, basically three different styles of church government arose. The first one was Episcopal. An Episcopal form of church government has bishops ruling the church. Any given geography, you would have a bishop that, um, that is over the church in a, in a diocese, perhaps is the name of that geography, with priests leading each one of the local church. Now, as that process percolated, because, again, you were dealing with different cultures, there tended to be four cities that became prominent, prominent centers for these kinds of councils and synods to meet and have impact and import to the church. And those four were Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Those cities are pretty far apart. And back in those days, whenever, if you want to travel someplace, you travel either by boat or you're walking. So over time, the church begins to divide between east and west. And eventually, the bishops in those four cities start vying for preeminence. And over time, the bishop of Rome became the head guy for the church of the West. That would lead, of course, to the Roman Catholic uh, pontiff and so forth. As these kinds of church leaders are encountering, encountering all of this cultural, theological, as well as governmental concerns, 
They're calling all of these councils now. There were many councils, and they met for a host of reasons, some of them well-founded, some of them less so. In the history of the church, over would take the first 800 years or so, there were seven councils of the church that both the church in the East and the church in the West agreed this council has spoken biblical truth and we will agree with their teachings and their leanings. The first one, the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from, we recite on given Sundays, 325 A.D., and you go through a council of Constantinople. Actually, three of, uh, of the Constantinople councils were of this seven. There was a council in Ephesus, a council in Chalcedon, a second one in Nicaea in 787 B.C. These first seven ecumenical councils, even though there were additional councils that went on, often for very nefarious reasons, that did not gain the approval of the churches east and west, but these seven did. It's one of the most fascinating stories, frankly, you will ever read. Uh, there's a book, a wonderful book written called The First Seven Ecumenical Councils, Their History and Theology. So if you were looking uh, for a very fascinating story, you can get that book. It's by a man named Leo Donald Davis. G.K. Chesterton, interestingly enough, said, I'm quoting here, nobody will ever write a history of Europe that will make any sort of sense until he does justice to the councils of the church. Those vast and yet subtle collaborations for thrashing out a thousand thoughts to find the true thought of the church. That's another definition that we have not seen. It's uh, paragraph one is, is putting that together a little bit. The other three will add to it. But what Chesterson, I love his phrasing here, thrashing out the subtle collaborations of a thousand thoughts to find the true thought of the church. That is the function of those early councils in particular, and it's a fascinating story. Now, Roman Catholicism uh, on its own was having some uh, important councils. I'll tell you about just three of them. The Council of Trent, a uh, very, very uh, infamous council, it was held between the years 1545 and 1563, so 18 years of meeting the so-called Council of Trent, and it met to respond to the Protestant Reformation. You've got Luther, you've got uh, Calvin, and you've got all of this teaching that's coming online about Protestantism, uh, the Reformation, the reformation of the church. Reformed how? Reformed back to scriptural integrity by Protestants, people who protested, people who protested against the church at Rome saying we want to reform it and get it back to Scripture. So the Council of Trent was uh, called in order to meet uh, that threat in terms of, of the parlance of Rome. And indeed, the Council of Trent basically uh, just declared that all of the distinctive views of the Reformation were heretical. Uh, not surprising. A second one, the Vatican Council, First Vatican Council in 1870, which is the Council of Roman Catholicism that decided that the Pope is infallible. Uh, you may have assumed that was thousands of years old. It was not. It was 1870 when the Vatican Council I uh, maintained that, uh, that there is papal infallibility. What the Pope says is infallible, threatening, uh, indeed, usurping Scripture. Vatican Council II, recent, 1962 to 1965, 
simply trying to get the Roman church up uh, more to a modern era. But I don't want to stay with, with the Episcopal. The Episcopal, I mentioned there were three forms of government that tended to shape up over time, one being the Episcopal, second, the Presbyterian form. No bishops in Presbyterianism, elders are ruling the church in a session or a series of, of courts. The, the lowest court is the session of any local church composed of elders. That's why certain men right now are meeting with, with our pastor uh, to be trained as uh, and adjudicated, if you will, to see uh, if they wish and if they are biblically warranted to become elders, members of the church session. The local church session, of course, moves up to a presbytery, which would be a gathering of all the churches. In the case of, of this church, I'm not sure what the confines of Calvary Presbytery are, uh, but they would be uh, a portion of the state of South Carolina, I would assume. I don't know if it goes into North Carolina, Georgia, whatever. Uh, but the presbytery would simply be a larger geography, and in many PCA churches as exists inside that presbytery, those elders would compose that presbytery. Beyond the presbytery system is the general assembly level, which would be all the elders in the PCA, those who are invited. Uh, now, that's an interesting point there because general assemblies, uh, you can have delegated or non-delegated general assemblies. The PCA, uh, believing that perhaps a delegated assembly, that is an assembly where certain delegates are chosen to go and other delegates are not, the PCA's feeling was that maybe that's uh, a little restrictive and therefore open enrollment, if you will, so a PCA General Assembly tends to have more than a 1,000 elders present. Uh, that's a big committee meeting, and I'm not going to say any more about that. Uh, you should go to one. Uh, you, anyone can attend. You should go to one and just see how your church functions. I mentioned there were three forms of government. The third form is congregational. Congregational uh, simply means the authority resides in the local church and the local church alone. There, there is no hierarchy. There is no appellate function. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But in a local church, under a congregational system, that means that the highest court of that church is a congregational meeting. Uh, those can be uh, interesting, which is why often you will have in a congregational setting, you will have... If, if there's a, a very divisive uh, issue among a congregation of a, uh, of a church in that government system, oftentimes it will split and you'll have another church formed. Westminster Confession of Faith that we're looking at favors the Presbyterian system. Now, the second paragraph of 31 says, it belongs to synods and councils ministerially, to determine controversies of faith, cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, in other words, if, if the decisions made are in uh, 
are according to the word of God, they are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. And again, you see Acts 15 uh, coming in as, as a key. In uh, that Jerusalem council, when those apostles made their decision, that decision went out with all of the apostles. And from that moment on, there was to be no more discussion about whether the gospel of Jesus Christ went to Gentiles or not. Paragraph two, in other words, is clarifying the reasons behind the calling of synods or councils. And we saw at least five things here, determining controversies of faith, cases of conscience, Establish rules, directions for public worship, better order the government of the church, and receive complaints in the case of some sort of administrative concern or other. Uh, now, what that means, again, I had previously mentioned the word appellate, uh, the, the, the privilege of appealing decisions. It's one of, uh, to me, one of the strongest aspects of Presbyterian church government, which I feel is biblical church government. And that is you can appeal decisions. Let's say, for instance, uh, that someone has uh, an issue here in Second Presbytery and they go to the session of Second Presbytery. And it's adjudicated, it, it's, it's uh, decided in a way that you don't agree with. You think there is biblical reason to challenge the decision made by the session of Second Presbytery. You have every right to appeal that decision up to the Presbytery and have many more elders listen to your argument as to why you think the decision made by the local church was not the right one. If you don't agree with the presbytery's decision, you can appeal it all the way up to the General Assembly and have the entire denomination listen to your case and your cause. Uh, I've, again, I have seen that beneficial process uh, play out so many, many times, and it really, really is important. Matthew 18 is, is uh, where it all begins. I want to get at that point, um, hopefully you're all familiar with Matthew 18. Uh, it, in Matthew 18, what you are told there is if a brother sins against you, go to that brother, speak to him. It should never get beyond the two people. An open conversation, hopefully, kind conversation in which both of you can, can express your concerns as well as the issues you have of whether uh, this or that actually happened the way it seemed to me that it happened. Oftentimes, I have assumed something that someone else has done uh, that was an error on my assumption, and it can be clarified right there. If it's not clarified, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 18 says, then take it to the church. What does that mean? That means in a Presbyterian context, take it into the session. Get the session to try to adjudicate. If that doesn't work again, it can be appealed up and up to the Presbyterian, to the General Assembly, so forth and so on. We go to the third paragraph of, of this chapter 31. <clears throat> This is important also. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err. And many have erred. 
Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. In other words, because all forms and levels of church government are composed of sinful men, they can blow it. Uh, and they have blown it over, over time. You see the, the um, various passages that it's uh, listed there for support of, of that concept. Uh, but because of this, the awareness that any kind of synod or council or whatever uh, can make mistakes, that again imp- implies the importance of that appellate system, uh, the, the means to, to keep going up and getting a wider audience, more counselors, more people to listen to your case. Hopefully, you are also willing, as you appeal all of this, Uh, to listen faithfully and humbly to what people are saying. Over time, many sentence and council decisions have been revisited. I've known of many of them to be reversed. Proper assessment of past decisions is always a wise component of any judicial decision. That's why you have case law. That's why you have uh, a means of looking backward Uh, Take, for instance, the case of women's ordination. If you started back uh, with the Jerusalem Council up until probably 1960 or so, there's nobody anywhere who would have questioned the fact that we ordain men. Men are the husbands of one wife, as Scripture uh, lays out very clearly. But since the 60s or whatever, for a number of reasons in many cultures now, that is questioned. And that has now become a very controversial part of of presbytery meetings, session meetings, synods, general assemblies, whatever. That is why the Bible must remain the infallible, inerrant rule of faith and practice. That is where you go back and you test over and over. Changes of culture uh, should never, ever influence things. They will, however, always influence things. Think of the era of slavery. I used to sit as a student at Westminster Seminary. I would go to the archives and read General Assembly minutes from the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And I would read of people that I knew to be very godly people defending chattel slavery from the Bible. I... Hopefully, very, very few people would ever want to do that today. But the point is, those people were caught in a culture that influenced them. Every person is always part of a culture that is influencing them. And again, that's why you look at past case history and so forth to help uh, make decisions. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He's not necessarily talking about this, but it applies He says, it is helpful to have the winds of the ages blow through your head, lest you be guilty of carrying the contemporary cultural baggage to the text. In other words, every one of us ought to be aware of the fact that our noses are pressed up against a tree and seeing the forest is going to be very, very difficult. This forest is the forest I was born in, raised in, live in, and I will die in. And to get outside of this forest is going to take a great deal of wisdom for me. And therefore, I should seek the wisdom of those who are able to see other forests, other trees, other scenarios, and help me uh, get to where I need to be 
in terms of a certain position or issue. Fourth and final paragraph. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical, in other words, dealing with the church, and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate." Now, this final paragraph, in my humble opinion, is deceptively important and increasingly controversial. Again, when the Westminster Assembly met, they were Englishmen meeting in England. In fact, the whole Westminster Assembly was called to meet. That was an assembly called by the government of England because in England, the government runs the church. That is still true today. The King of England is head of the Church of England. Americans don't think that way. We separate church and state. And that's why this particular paragraph was rewritten in order to say, all right, the church and the state are separate, and therefore the church, when it meets with synods, is to handle and conclude nothing but which is church-related. excludes intermeddling, it says, with civil or governmental affairs of the culture, the state, country, municipality. I'll tell you where they get that. And in a minute, I'll tell you why I think it's pretty controversial. Classic uh, case and passage of this is in Romans chapter 13, the opening of Romans chapter 13, first seven verses say this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That's a very very interesting passage that, that Paul... Uh, If you notice throughout the entire passage, the assumption is that the rulers, the government rulers, are going to be concerned about what God says. The reason I think this particular paragraph uh, is an elephant sitting in the middle of the living room, or in this case the gym, maybe even a herd of elephants, is what do you do when that government is not honoring the Lord? What for instance, would you do if the government is seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ? 
These are interesting questions, and thankfully I don't have time to go into them. Uh, but I do uh, simply want to bring this up. I've been uh, interested in this notion. It, it says that uh, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, in other words, there may be some extraordinary reason that a church, council, or synod might want to speak to the government. The whole of the last week, I have been dealing with a wonderful man. His name is Wayne Sparkman. Some of you may know him. He is the archivist of the PCA, works out of the Presbyterian Historical Center in St. Louis. And I called him about uh, 10 days ago. I said, Wayne, look, I've worked with him before. He, <laughs> he, knows, he knows to regret my phone calls. But um, I said, Wayne, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a listing of any kind of statement that the PCA has ever made from its presbyteries or general assembly level, it would have to come from the general assembly, to the United States government. And he said, golly, I don't think anybody's ever asked for that, which, which he didn't find that surprising. But uh, the more he worked on it, he said, you know, this is, this is very insightful to see this sort of thing. And he initially sent me a list that I, I was on my way to hit print when I noticed 308 pages long. And I said, Wayne, uh, I, you know, is there, can you crunch this a little bit? And it turned out that his initial was, uh, his initial uh, sending was all uh, of the issues that had come to any General Assembly, whether or not they had to do with the government. So I breathed a sigh of relief and he's been working. And just this morning, he sent me another list of those issues that came to the General Assemblies of the PCA wanting to make a statement to the government. Not surprisingly, in order to be extraordinary, which is the mandate of uh, paragraph 4 here in chapter 31, they have to do generally with issues like abortion, uh, LGBT concerns. I think there may even be a uh, uh, one coming up uh, for consideration at, at this coming uh, General Assembly. But the point is, uh, all of these checks and balances and all of these mandates are in place based on this, this 31st chapter. Uh, now, you would assume with all of those multitude of counselors over the, the uh, millennia uh, that everything would run very smoothly and nothing would be out of place and we should be increasingly unified as we go through time because how many issues can there be new under the sun? Purportedly, not many. Uh, well, <clears throat> that's what the Presbyterian Church now looks like in the United States. And it's not one line. Almost every squiggle on that uh, chart is an instance at which Presbyterians got together in general assemblies or synods and disagreed to the point where there says, I see no option but to go start another denomination. Uh, I've put, uh, I've shaded in green. You see that top, uh, the smallest, the smaller of the two green lines there, that's the PCA. PCA is very new on the scene. Uh, that's about 1973 or so that the PCA starts. Uh, the bottom green line is the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That came about in 1936. So it's a little bit longer, but as you may or may not be able to tell from where you're sitting, this chart goes back to 1700. So this is basically the entire history of uh, the United States of America. 
and those are all Presbyterian denominations, and these are not all of them. And you notice that sometimes they branch and then they get back together. The Civil War uh, brought about a, uh, a large separation of the Presbyterian church, that big heavy line through the center there. Uh, the large Presbyterian church split between the northern church and the southern church. It came back together about 1983, I think. Uh, PCUSA today is what we would call that, and it continues out in that line. Uh, but the point being that even though you have all of these mechanisms in place to do things decently and in order, uh, things sometimes go awry. And uh, I wanted to just give you a, a brief snippet, uh, a real-life scenario example of this. Uh, it's pretty dry to talk about meetings, um, <clears throat> and you've been very patient so far. But I want you to, I want to illustrate uh, what what happens in in real life uh, by relating a story of a man named J. Gresham Machen. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, a wonderful, wonderful American theologian, died on uh, January the first of nineteen thirty-seven. Uh, but um, here's a brief snippet. And what I want you to, to see is how this man, even though he is a theologian of the highest merit and the highest rank at Princeton Seminary, which was the best seminary, in my humble opinion, that has ever existed on this planet's surface, for 100 years or so, it was Princeton Seminary was founded about eight was founded in 1812, and up to about 1912, I don't think you could find a better seminary. Uh, it is not that way today. And Machen was a professor at Princeton Seminary during the years that it started to head south, during the years that, that gobbledygook started occurring there, that the scriptures started being defamed there. So as I go through some of these uh, bullet points of Machen's life, think about all of the interaction that's going on between the faculty of a seminary of the largest Presbyterian denomination. Princeton Seminary was the feeder school to that main line, that, that line that goes all the way across that chart right there. And one of its esteemed faculty members. 1906, Machen starts as a faculty member of Princeton Seminary. He served there for 23 years. 1914, he's ordained as a minister in the PCUSA. 1921, uh, his, his primary mentor and colleague at Princeton was a man named B.B. Warfield. Most of you have heard about B.B. Warfield. I hope you've read his books. If you haven't, you should get them and read them. Uh, Warfield uh, is a colleague of, of uh, Machen, and in 1921, he dies. And the baton has to pass. Machen, in a letter to his mother, recounts the final conversation he had with Warfield, where Machen expressed hope to Warfield that there might be a, a spot, a, a, something in the church in order to separate, some kind of split is what Machen is hoping for, a split in the church in order to separate the Christians from the anti-Christian propagandists. He's making that statement about the church, about the denomination, 
about this main Presbyterian denomination in 1921. Warfield replies this way, no, you can't split rotten wood. That's a statement. Here are are two of the leading lights of American Presbyterianism, absolute people dedicated to the Word of God, and that's how they're viewing the church. 1922, next year, a man named Harry Emerson Fostick preaches a sermon with this title, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Harry Emerson Fostick was a Baptist-ordained minister, but he was serving in the First Presbyterian Church of New York City. That should send every one of the flags up uh, already. Uh, This sermon that he preaches, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, is a battle cry for liberalism to take over the church. 1924, just two years later, those people like Fosdick and others sign something called the Auburn Affirmation. It's a little town in New York State, Auburn, New York. There's a report from a group of ministers, PCUSA, in response to a statement issued in 1910. In 1910, a group of of ministers came together and put a report called the Five-Point Deliverance that reaffirmed Scripture as the inerrant, infallible Word of God. The response to that report was this Auburn Affirmation in 1924, sent to challenge the following issues, inerrancy of Scripture, virgin birth of Christ, substitutionary atonement, Christ's bodily resurrection, and the miracles of Christ, saying that he never performed any. This is what's going on at the power centers of the largest Presbyterian denomination among the leadership. 1925, interesting thing, Machen has been supplying the pulpit of First Presbyterian Church in Princeton, New Jersey. When a man named Henry Van Dyke, very important man in the culture, he'd been a, an ambassador for the United States, among other things, he's a liter, literature professor at Princeton University, which is adjacent to Princeton Seminary. He gives up his pew. That's the way it's described. Back in those days, uh, sometimes you owned your own pew. He gives up his pew in protest over Machen being the supply pastor. And he sends a letter when he does this to the New York Times. Now, remember what Matthew 18 says? If I've got a problem with a brother, I go to that brother. The whole point is you keep all of this as, as close and as low to the ground as you possibly can. You don't want it escalating into issues that threaten the church. Here is a man who leaves the First Presbyterian Church in Princeton, New Jersey, and writes a letter to the New York Times when he does it, blasting Machen. And he says this, quote from the New York Times, The few Sundays I am free from speaking are too precious to be wasted in listening to such a dismal, bilious travesty of the gospel. That's how he describes Machen's preaching. Machen, rather than split the church, steps down, no longer the supply preacher. Van Dyke then returns to the church. Next year, 1926, Machen is appointed the chair of apologetics after Warfield dies. The General Assembly refuses to confirm the appointment. That was supposed to be simply a perfunctory matter. 
Uh, the, the seminary had, had chosen Machen and, and sent his uh, nomination to the General Assembly. They don't disavow him. They just refuse to act on it. It's a not-so-veiled insult, in other words. Machen at that point receives a lot of letters of support, but he also receives a lot of hate mail. This is one of them. Dear Professor of Bigotry, now just stop calumniating. That means uttering malicious false statements. Calumniating your brethren and broaden out your miserable theology and learn to be a Christian or else get out. That's good Christian brotherhood. 1929, Princeton Seminary reorganizes itself. That was an intentional move to turn it liberal. Princeton Seminary, from its founding, from 1812, had two boards of of, uh, leadership, one a board of directors, which was conservative, the other a board of trustees who were the money men. That one was liberal. They combined them in 1929 intentionally to make the liberals the predominant power at Princeton. From that moment on, Princeton's gone downhill like a brick. Machen, therefore, leaves Princeton Seminary. Starts another seminary, goes back across the river and starts one called Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. 1933, this is the the cherry on the whipped cream. A report comes out called Rethinking Missions. This report was a one-volume condensation of a seven-volume study of world missions suggested and financed by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., the new view of missions and the, the one-liner coming out of this Rethinking Missions report was the world understanding on the spiritual level. And you can imagine where that's going. It drew immediate fire from all Christian conservatives. The report was championed among, among by many liberals, but among uh, not the least of which was Pearl Buck. Pearl Buck was um, the daughter of missionary family. She herself had served as a missionary in China. She wrote a book about that called The Good Earth. Very famous book, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1932, won a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1938. Pearl Buck comes in and endorses this reappraisal of missions report. In her endorsement, she also publicly rejects the deity of Christ preferring instead to speak of Christ as, quote, the essence of men's highest dreams. She also discards the need for preaching the gospel and says this, quote, I am weary unto death with this incessant preaching, end quote. Now, there may be a, I'm not going to go. Machen responds to all this with a 110-page statement entitled Modernism and the Board of Foreign Missions. What does he do? He and some friends go form another mission board called the Independent Board of Foreign Missions that's now going to work at loggerheads with the foreign mission board of the biggest Presbyterian church in America. So Machen himself is doing things that from frustration, from whatever, he's throwing in the towel and and they're starting to do things clearly uh, that are, are going around the Uh, issues that we read about in chapter 31. But again, what do you do if, as Warfield said, the whole thing is rotten? Tough decision. 1935, he's declared guilty of violating his ordination vows. He appeals it to General Assembly all the way up to the top. General Assembly uh, 
declares him guilty and uh, rejects his, his appeal. They defrock him from the ministry. Uh, one of the most powerful, godly, biblical ministers in America. 1936, he goes and he forms another denomination, he and, and other friends. They form the OPC. That's that green line on the bottom, the larger green line on this chart. And, of course, as I mentioned, he's, uh, he dies very, very shortly thereafter. His dying words, interestingly, Machen, by that point, uh, was beaten down, exhausted, and he goes on a trip to South Dakota where he catches pneumonia and he dies. Before he dies, he sends a telegraph to a, a fellow uh, Princetonian who is now a professor at that point at Westminster Seminary named John Murray. And Machen's dying words to Murray are these. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. My point, again, is simply to illustrate that, uh, yes, there is a system in place. The system is not perfect because sinful men run it. Uh, They are not trying to be sinful. It's just the nature of the difficulty of the task we face so my, my uh, parting words to you from this 31st chapter would be to pray for your church officers. Uh, it is not easy. As a pastor, I used to sit there and every now and then I'd have uh, somebody in the church say, I want to be an elder. And that was, I, I, I didn't reject him out of hand, but I, that was close. You shouldn't want to be an elder. Uh, if you've ever been in a session meeting or two where you've had to deal with somebody who's apostatized or whatever, uh, more seriously, of course, you would aspire to leadership in the church if the Lord calls you to it. But that's the point. You need to be called to it, and you need to take it with great seriousness. So pray for the leaders in the church, not just in this church. Pray for those who will meet in every presbytery meeting that occurs. Pray for those who will meet at every general assembly that occurs because they are weighing very serious issues and it can, uh, it can jump the rails because of pettiness, of pride, of all of these kinds of things, but especially of unbelief. And these men are called to steer the ship to the home port following Scripture and Scripture alone, and that is a tall, tall order. Chapter 31 of the Confession helps us do it, but we need everyone praying for one another, leaning on one another, and trying desperately to understand Scripture the best of our ability and follow it uh, to the best of our ability. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, this little bitty chapter uh, on the surface seems so mundane so boring that who would ever worry about councils, synods, and meetings? Well, the meetings take place and dramatic things occur or do not occur when they should have. Uh, It's a difficult issue, Father, but we do pray. Even now, Father, we pray for these men in this church who are with our pastor, learning about the task at hand in this this very serious matter. Uh, For deacons, uh, Father, as well as, as elders, we, we simply thank you for the, for the strong men we have in this church. And we also pray, Father, that you would help them to be stronger. Raise up strong men across this land, Father, to, to take these positions in churches that we might return the church 
Uh, Father, wherever there, there are churches that are indeed rotten wood, we pray that we could get rid of the rot and that you would be gracious enough through the power of your spirit to make it whole again, to make it vibrant again, to make it real again, to make it the, the issue that controls this world, Father, with the truth. Make the truth uh, something this country wants to hear, Father, and make it come with crystal clarity from the word and only from the word. We do pray for these men, for this church, for every one of the churches of Jesus Christ in this land, regardless of denomination, Father. Uh, Strengthen your church, lift it up, and make us humbly proud to be a part of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.